Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey everybody, welcome to Marriage and Martinis. I'm Adam, here's Danielle. Hello. Hello. So this was not our anticipated episode. Uh, we had one planned out that Danielle, you heavily promoted on social media, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I guess I screwed it up a little bit. I was not feeling well, was definitely not up to feeling to recording, and I am... I don't, I don't want to say you're, you're lucky that I'm doing this, at least the intro to what, the episode that we have, but at least I'm st- sort of starting to feel a little normal on a Sunday night. So I'm, I, I'm sorry, I was not able I know, to I do I want a episode. weekend do-over. I do too. Yeah. I felt like shit. I, yeah, I, you did. I, I, I don't ever sleep like I slept yesterday. I know. I went upstairs to wake you up. You're like, what time is it? I'm like, it's 5.30. I was in and out of sleep all day. Yeah. So, but I watched the Billie Eilish documentary with the kids last night. It was really fun right. and it was nice kind of to have like a down weekend, not doing anything, but we are still going to do the other episode, which was kind of a behind the scenes about podcasting and the social media and everything that people are always asking us about. We'll try to do that in the next week or two. Uh, so that will definitely be coming. Yeah. But well, I want to interrupt oh. you on that before you jump ahead of it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about doing that episode. So I really do want to be at my best for that. Yeah. Because it does excite me to, to do this episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about it. So I, I just I want to make sure I'm, you know, my all. Okay. Okay. But I was very excited about this episode. I could not wait to put this one out. Uh, we're, so we're just releasing it a little bit early. It's with Wednesday Martin. And I'm not really a science person. Like in our relationship, you are definitely the science person. You love all of that stuff. This type of science is so fascinating to me. Anthropology and linking thousands of years ago to today, figuring out why it's taking so long as a society for us to truly appreciate women and stop holding us back. Um, and one of the ways that we've really been held back and contained is sexually. And as an anthropologist, the way Wednesday uses science to understand how we got to this point of shaming women for being sexual beings um, and for thinking as a society that monogamy is the only way that we're supposed to live and is anything else is wrong. Um, why women haven't been taught to expect good sex and to demand and expect orgasms and why we are still lacking so much in, as she calls it, my new favorite word, clitoracy. Love it. Um, Which I, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we're really talking from a scientific perspective about how women became, for lack of a better word, trapped or confined into being caretakers and expected to be monogamous and just focus on taking care of the family and raising kids. But 
I hope you'll listen through to the end because as we keep going through the episode, what I love is where this went, which is why is this all relevant today? We talk about everything from sexual debuts, which you'll hear more about in the episode. Uh, We talk about self-pleasure, being sexually curious at a young age. Um, And I highly recommend her book, which I love. Um, And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Oh, at one point she she mentions a skirt party, um, which if you haven't read the book, you don't know it means that. So a skirt party is like a high glamour sex party for women. It's women only. All-female gratification gathering for sexually fluid women. I can't wait to research that more. Dr. Wednesday Martin is a social scientist, storyteller, and number one New York Times bestselling author. One of my mom's favorite books, The The Primates of Park Avenue. That's a tongue twister. Her book, Untrue, was described as revolutionary by The Atlantic and an indispensable work of popular psychology and sociology. She co-hosts the True Sex and Wild Love podcast and hosts a popular Instagram live, Wineless Wednesdays, for the sober and sober curious who want up-to-date info on sex, sexual science, and sexual health. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I loved it. I can't wait to have her back on. So uh, sit back, listen, and please listen till the end. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I am um, a very big fan, and I have read a lot of your work, and I listen to your podcast, and um, yeah, it's been great because especially the last week, I I mean, I've listened to it for a while, but the last week I was sort of binging to try to um, get caught up. And uh, it was just great. It everything you do is great, and I'm grateful because I think that you. I mean, you're definitely doing, we're doing kind of a simmered down version of what you're doing because we don't have the, the anthro, you know, the anthropological, is that right? Yeah. That's Background right. or anything. But, but I think our podcast also is just getting people to be a little bit more open, a little less shamed, um, more comfortable. And you concentrate mostly on women, right? Like on just yeah. sort of. Yeah, I, yep, go ahead. That's kind of my um, jam, and I have a whole spiel about why I do. Um, but I love that you guys are approaching the topic as a couple, you know, as a straight couple. It's really valuable for people um, to hear from the horse's mouth, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. from the right from the trenches. You know, what I do is more academic, except my podcasting is kind of more personal. But um, I love that you guys are just putting putting your experience out there. It's it's brave and it's really important. So thank you. And thanks thank for having you. me on. Yeah, thank you. I want to talk a little bit about mainly Untrue, um, uh- which, which I've read and I love. And I think that the, the title has two different meanings is that correct that it's untrue in the fact that everything we think we know here I'll say exactly from the cover why nearly everything we believe about women lust and infidelity is wrong and how the new science can set us free right also this idea that women are thought to be I mean untrue is sort of a nice way of kind of saying liars right right I mean it's so untrue is a euphemism right from I believe it's a 
it might have been a 19th century term, but it certainly prevailed into the 20th century that it was a euphemism for a woman who was, quote, cheating, unquote, which is a term I don't like. It was a euphemism for a woman who was having sex outside the dyad. How about that? And that, so people would say she was, quote, untrue, unquote. And so it is a euphemism for a woman committing, quote, infidelity, unquote. And then, but it also implies that term untrue, um, also implies that she's like, you know, not being true to a social code, right, which she isn't. And then untrue is a reference to just all the confirmation bias in sexual science that has been prevailing at least since the time of Darwin, but all the untrue notions about female sexuality that have um, you know, been put in place really since the advent of plow agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago. So yeah, the, the word has many, many meanings. Um, it has at least those three meanings. And that's why I liked it for the title of the book. Yeah, and you talk about, you're talking about plow agriculture. You're literally talking about the differences between there's hoe agriculture, which is, I guess, you know, like sowing the ground for seeds and everything. And that was when the women sort of were, um, they kind of were in the more powerful position in the yeah. society. Mm -hmm. And then actually like this other type of, of plow agriculture where women were not, they became very sedentary and um, therefore like they were sort of powerless and became almost like these breeding you know, the, used for breeding and making just more kids. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you just summarized so well, like we kind of gave away the punchline of the book, but that's good. I'm all for that. <laughs> um, but you, you really nicely summarized uh, one of the things that I get into in the book, which is I link um, this idea that women are supposed to be monogamous and that they're less sexual than men to a shift in production uh, that happened 10 to 12,000 years ago when we went uh, basically from hunting and gathering, uh, which meant that women uh, would be spending a lot of time uh, out on their own, uh, walking around sometimes, you know, five to 12 miles a day, it seems. And uh, so they were very active. So as you said, uh, before 10 to 12,000 years ago, um, women's uh, fertility uh, rates were pretty low because they had low body fat because they were walking around all the time. And also because they were walking around and gathering a lot, they were providing their bands when we lived as hunter gatherers with in some instances, you know, maybe as much as 80% of the band's calories came from women. So, um, you know, women had, because they were like bringing home the bacon, if you will, right? Meat was great. Meat was like a great event. If you look at contemporary hunter-gatherers, meat is this great event and everybody loves it. But basically the backbone of people's diets uh, in those societies and the societies of our ancestors, the backbone was, you know, roots, tubers, uh, uh, nuts, and things that women were gathering all day. So women had big clout. You know, I like to say that hunter-gatherer societies, think of them that they had big pussy energy, right? The women were bringing all the resources in, and they weren't really burdened uh, with uh, 
uh, child rearing, it wasn't so burdensome because it was only happening once every four, five, six years. And so other children were able to uh, take care of those, those babies and help out. And so were um, other conspecifics that the women lived in. Now, to make a long story short, you made this point about the transition to plow agriculture. Uh, once we started doing that, what happened was <laughs> a whole lot of changes came along and believe it or not, this has everything to do with us thinking women should be monogamous. Um, but suddenly with plow agriculture, there are two advantages, really physical advantages that men have over women when you break down into component parts. Um, one is endurance running on a lot of uh, data suggest that we're similar um, and other measures of uh, strength and physical ability what, that I get into in my book. But there are two measures where men do measurably better than women. And one is grip strength and one is upper body strength in general. And so when the plow came along, when we went from like kind of domesticating plants a little bit to just like 100% being like, wow, let's do this and let's get some draft animals and let's get some heavy plows and push them or let's get some draft animals and control those huge things. Men literally had the upper hand because of upper body strength. So women went from being these primary producers, bringing home the bacon, frying it up in the pan, deciding when the band would leave. Should the band go to this belly or that belly? Uh, should we eat the diker all of it now tonight or should we save some of the diker for tomorrow night? Women had a big voice in the community decisions and, and a lot of power and clout. And like, good luck raising your hand against a woman who's paying your rent, right? <laughs> bringing the food home, don't mess with her. So then we had this transition to plow agriculture. Suddenly men were outside in the field doing stuff that women could not do. Women are no longer primary producers. They're secondary producers. Now they're at home. They can't be going off into the bush anymore like running their own business, maybe meeting up with a lover in the bush. They're at home, right? And they're not just at home, they're sedentary. And that jacks up their fat levels, their adipose levels. Their body fat composition shifts to having more body fat, which impacts their fertility. Now women are ovulating more frequently and moving around less, and they're more fertile. And their interbirth interval goes from four, five, six years to like, wow, a year or two right? So you have this shift in production and just keep in mind what it means about female fates. No longer out gathering independent, finding your guy in the bush uh, and being the boss of your own time. Uh, no, in one place, more fertile, secondary producer, what are you doing? Right? Like you're not being that helpful. Um, so a, a lowering of status. You're not bringing all the food home. Um, I'm out here doing this, right? So there's this perceptible lowering of status because we know that wherever women are providing resources or food or money, their status is higher. So that, that goes down low. Plus they're more fertile more often. Now they're dependent on their husbands. They have dependent offsprings, offspring. And uh, now suddenly we're not just like eating for the day, right? We have all this grain. We have these grain reserves. Let's like 
save this stuff. So with plow agriculture, up comes this idea of property. This is my field. This is my grain, right? It belongs to me and my family instead of the band sharing everything. And uh, not only that, uh, this is my this is my property. This is my grain. And wow, I'm going to pass this stuff down. I'm going to pass down my draft animals, my my grain later, my money that I get from my grain. Hold up. I'm passing it down to these kids. Those better be my kids, right? So I like to say that this expectation uh, that women have to be monogamous was sort of planted. It was a seed that got planted in, with our first crops. And one last point to get back to the fertility point you made, you know, when, when we started with this plow agriculture nonsense, uh, the other thing that was going on uh, was that women, uh, their fertility levels were jacked up. So they weren't just dependent on their husband. They had babies who were dependent as well. And so suddenly, you know, they had, they had to behave and they were expected to behave. So it is an amazing thing to see how something like a shift in the mode of production, uh, how the plow has to do with women being expected to be virgins and women expected uh, to not step out on their husbands. And so whenever I hear uh, you know, a woman getting shamed for quote cheating unquote, you know, I think to myself, isn't it amazing that plow agriculture helped set those expectations? Um, so yeah, it's so crazy, interesting, crazy thing. We just dove into like the most boring. But the thing that's really, I mean, it's interesting in and of itself, but the thing, and we'll skip ahead 10, 12,000 years, but whatever you want, right, right now, especially like we're in a pandemic, which, you know, is, is part of the problem currently with a lot of uh, w women being bored and, you know, sexually bored. And, and right now there not being a lot of connection with women and their partners and everything. But even forget pandemic. There's this idea that, you know, that men have more, uh, you know, are more sexual, uh, have more <laughs> of a need to be sexual more often and, you know, are, are more experimental and everything. And uh, basically, again, getting back to that whole untrue, that it's just bullshit. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that probably, scientifically, we were not meant to be monogamous beings, that we were really forced into that in, in a sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so interesting. And I mean, you're just bringing up some of the super salient points. And I love how you're putting a pin in the current cultural moment. I mean, at some point, we should get to talk about this research that I'm always putting out there, which is surprising uh, to everybody, which is that, but there are very persuasive data from coming from many directions uh, that is women, uh, not men, who start to struggle with sexual boredom uh, more quickly uh, in a long-term committed cohabiting relationship. And we've been taught the opposite. So I wanted to say this idea that monogamy or non-monogamy is natural in quotes or unnatural in quotes. So here's the viewpoint from anthropology, which is my kind of my jam and the way I view the world, right? I look at the world um, through the lens of cultural anthropology, which means that you just look 
comparatively at different cultures, you look at the worldwide ethnographic data about how people behave sexually rather than just focusing on the US uh, in order to kind of generate insights about it. And then I also look at the world through the lens of evolutionary biology and primatology, right? So what can evolution tell us um, about our, sex, our, our sexual present moment? What is our, what is the evolutionary backstory uh, tell us about how we are now? Um, and also primatology, which is the study of monkeys and apes. You know, I'm a person who believes that if you want to uh, understand the sexual behavior of homo sapiens of men and women, you really have to look to our non-human primate uh, closest relatives, right? Monkeys and apes, um, probably our very closest relatives would probably be the best ones to look at chimps and bonobos. Okay, so that's my kind of different way of looking at, at sexual behavior. Now, when we talk about natural and unnatural monogamy, non-monogamy, here's the cool thing about our species, homo sapiens sapiens. We're here today because unlike, say, Homo ergaster or Homo habilis or any of our Homo ancestors, one of the reasons our species is here is that we were super flexible sexual and social strategists, right? We were cooperative breeders, which means we all raised our offspring collectively. We, we, the, the record very much suggests that we mated multiply right? So we probably had multiple partners. And that got everybody invested in raising our offspring collectively together, which enhanced the reproductive success of everybody. Um, so we had that going on. But we could be successful in a number of different niches. We could have different arrangements, basically depending on environmental conditions. So like you will see to this day that there are societies in, many of them are in Tibet or in China uh, on the border of Tibet where there's polyandry. You may have heard of these tribes uh, where women have multiple husbands and that's called polyandry. Um, there are cultures where there's something called walking marriage in near that region, which is different, a little bit different from polyandry, but uh, women just never really partner with men. They're sort of like female elephants. Men come in to breed with them and then the women uh, raise their offspring uh, with their parents and their brothers act uh, as, as baby's dad. Um, and so I like to say that among those people, um, dads are uncles and uncles are dads and moms are everything. Um, so then there are places in the world where you will see uh, that there's polygyny, uh, that men have multiple wives and uh, women have been able to make that work uh, for themselves. Although some anthropologists order, argue not as well, they argue that women's reproductive success is not as, as good. Um, but we do see women you know, thriving, relatively speaking, in those settings. We see in Brooklyn, we see women being openly polyamorous. Uh, but we might see uh, women in some places in the United States where a woman uh, who steps out on her male partner uh, will be killed, right? And so female sexuality really varies and human sexuality really varies depending on its container, right? So it just follows that, you know, in some places, female uh, sexuality is going to be very muted and dialed 
down because it's dangerous to be sexual. And then at some places like a skirt club party, right? In New York or Vienna or um, Shanghai or, or Ibiza, um, female sexuality is gonna be really robust and ebullient and assertive. Um, so that's the thing to keep in mind um, that sexuality and particularly female sexuality, I like to say that um, female sexuality happens at the intersection of the clitoris and uh, the culture and the ecology, right? So we can't say that we're naturally any one way or the other. The awesome thing about us as a species is that we can be many different ways. And the only consistent thing about our sexuality is its inconsistency. So that's why our species is here. We're like super freaks. And it's the reason that we're here, sexually and socially speaking. So I always like to point that out. Now, that said, I also like to point out so we are super flexible and that's our strength. That said, the soup that we were cooked in, it is my belief when I throw my hat in with the evolutionary biologists um, and um, anthropologists and primatologists who say this, the soup that we were cooked in uh, was cooperative breeding, mating multiply, raising our offspring collectively and um, that's, that was the secret of our species success as much as our flexibility. And, you know, I'm one of the people who believes that a lot of that software uh, is in us still. Uh, the human female clitoris to me is uh, just a testament to the fact uh, that it was very beneficial to females to mate promiscuously in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. in our evolutionary prehistory. And hey, a lot of that equipment, that equipment is still there, that clitoris is still there, um, and the software is still there. And in Untrue, I get into, um, you know, in anthropology and evolutionary biology, the way you measure the success of a species or an individual is their reproductive success. How many of their offspring go on to successfully, to grow up, and get to the age where they can successfully reproduce themselves and then do that, right? So reproductive success, it's pretty retrograde and heteronormative. Um, and we should just start talking about queer people soon, uh, all of us here talking right now, but anthropology and biological anthropology need to uh, really start dealing with queerness uh, a lot. That said, we still measure uh, reproductive success is the measure of the success uh, of an individual. And so in Untrue, I get into why mating multiply is actually not great for the reproductive success of males of most species and why it is really great for the reproductive success of, of females of many species, uh, including humans. So um, that really upends what we were taught, you know, I don't know what you guys yeah. were taught, but I was always taught that like males of every species are just like super horny and sexually assertive and sexually aggressive. And females are really like coy and diminutive, right? right? And like, oh. Yeah, and it's not so long ago. I think well, it, was we, in, mm -hmm. it was in a podcast episode recently that I was talking about, I can remember my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, basically talking about how she just basically has sex for her husband and that, you know, she gets no enjoyment out of it. I remember one of my, uh, my mom's cousins, not my cousin, but my, one of my mom's cousins also talking it like, 
it's not, you know, you think about it as that of being such an archaic way of thinking, but it's it's not. It's still. But you said, but but you said like we were, you you both think you were taught this is how things are, but by who? Like who taught you those things? I, I know it's kind of more of a generalized societal yeah. thing that we that it, it's just there. But yeah. were you ever taught? Well, but that- there's so many things in school. You can even look at my daughter's dress code in school and wonder, you know, what is she being taught there? That, you know, shorts can only be so short and she has to show a certain portion of her shoulders and everything. Boys can't, you know, should, boys shouldn't have, be able, be looking at her in a certain way and it's not appropriate. And yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's just well, signals that- and signs everywhere that because men, men are so, boys are so sexual that, you know, th- that well, girls need to cover themselves up for that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, well, you know, I, I do love this question of where, like where, where are we getting this messaging? And for me, it was in science class. I was literally taught in science class that um, males are aggressive and assertive and females are passive and coy. But before that, I was getting tons of messages all the time, right? I remember when I was a kid, um, I remember the Miss America pageant um, and there was a protest. I don't know what year this was. It was in the late 60s or early 70s. And there was a, there people protested the Miss America pageant. Um, and I remember the Miss America pageant was such a powerful message when I was maybe five that these women were just so beautiful. They were perfectly presented and they were flawless and they didn't talk a lot and they were valued because they were so beautiful and um, contained, right? They perfectly fit the script of what feminine beauty was. And then there was a real uh, raging, um, really interesting, richly symbolic thing that went on when people protested the Miss America pageant that year. Uh, And some of them were feminine, you know, men joined as well, but it was mostly women um, uh, protesting. I don't know if it was 1969, 1970, but people protested and it, it set this collision course almost between two different versions of femininity because it was the beginning of the second wave of feminism. So for me, that was one of my first lessons, like what I learned in science class, what I saw every time I watched television. I remember watching I Dream of Jeannie and um, the main character, um, Barbara Eden was like this blonde ponytail genie and she lived in a bottle and she called um, the guy who had the bottle master. And she did all these like tricky things, right? To try to like sneak her way around master's control. So like, that was a thing that I learned about femininity. I learned a lot. Um, I don't know about you guys. I learned a lot 
about sex roles and gender roles from television probably like that was really um where where i got my education um but certainly you know <laughs> when we turn to the science for example we really see that like when darwin started doing his observations in the later 19th century the later half of the 19th century he really made it clear that you know he really believed when he observed sexual and social behavior that males were aggressive and assertive and that females were passive and coy and he tied that all into uh, females have to be choosy because they get pregnant and males have to spread all their sperm around and that idea really caught on um and it wasn't for another you know it wasn't until really uh 2012 that somebody said wait does this actually play out in the science there are two different questions where do those messages come from and how do they how do they sink in and hit but certainly um science had a sexual science had a lot to do with um perpetrating two really big myths that i always thought were true i always thought it was true that men are quote naturally more sexual than women and I always thought it was true that women's bodies were made for monogamy. And then I looked at the last 40 years of science and mind blown because it's totally untrue. I mean, this big sacred cow of sex research and like a lot of television shows and a lot of science, men are more sexual than women. Actually, they're not. When we measure libido accurately, and when we measure many different kinds of desire and arousal, it turns out that male and female libidos, men's libidos and women's libidos in the aggregate are pretty equally matched. But that when women are in their menstrual cycle, uh, their libido might be up here higher than their partners. Now, why does science like this matter? Because you guys have, do you guys have boys and girls? Yeah. Okay. So your little boy is already getting uh, unfairly stereotyped. We talked about your little girls getting stereotyped or having uh, a lot of roles and anxiety, cultural anxiety about how they dress. Um, but let's talk about what happens to little boys when there's bad sexual science that's inaccurate, right? Your little boy's already being profiled in, but the time I don't know about you guys, when my kid was literally four years old, he always liked to have play dates with little girls. He always had girlfriends. He still does to this day. And I remember at his nursery school, when he would have play dates with the girls, the dads would joke, tell him to keep his hands off her. Jeez Louise, like the kids are four years old. Chill, dad. But it was like said jokingly to my husband with me overhearing it, but it was a joke about how like, watch out for boys, you know how they are. I mean, it was gross because they were four, right? But my son was already being profiled even jokingly, right? Yeah. Now, as boys get older, uh, they're increasingly profiled, um, you know, that, uh, you know, if girls uh, wear skimpy clothes, wow, boys are gonna be out of control. You can't trust boys. Boys aren't trustworthy, boys are rotten, boys are dogs, uh, boys will do terrible things. 
right? And the sexual science is like, yeah, because that's the way they're made. Um, then as boys get older, now they're, they're men and they're starting to have sex, okay? And they're, if they're in a heterosexual relationship, because of bad sexual science that has said that men are naturally more sexual than women, now men, when they have a problem getting an erection, they think there's something wrong with them. They think that any time their partner wants to have sex, they're supposed to be able to do it. They've been profiled that they're like these energizer bunnies. You're just supposed to take them down off the shelf and they can have sex with you endlessly, right? And a lot of men are saying like, I don't know, like I had a bad day at work. I can't get it up and I guess I'm broken. Or a lot of men are saying, you know, I had an argument. I'm not feeling close to my partner, but like I'm a big pussy if I say that. Or, um, you know, wow, this is so bad. Like I can't get an erection in a second. I, you know, I need some connection for that. I, I must not really be a man. So all this crappy sexual science right. is, damaging, is damaging men a lot. And I see that because I have boys. And it makes me so sad. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to communicate all these new, newer findings in sexual science, like that men and women um, actually have very matched libidos. If you're a woman, women feel so broken. They're like, my libido's higher than my male partner. I'm like, join the club. Like, <laughs> right. that's the case a lot of times. Um, or, so a lot of women feel very bad that, why do I always have to initiate sex? Uh, why doesn't, why doesn't my male partner just have a hard on when I walk in the room? It's like this, this idea that men are just these purely sexual beings, um, is damaging men and women in relationships. There's a great book about it, uh, how sexual, how bad sexual science has harmed men. And it's called not on, not always in the mood by, uh, my friend, the sex researcher, Sarah Hunter Murray. But I just want to make the point that, you know, when there's untrue science about women, there's untrue science about men and it wrecks people and relationships. And that's why I wanted yeah. to write this book. Yeah. And it's funny, Adam was saying before you were asking about like who told us that, you know, that men are more sexual and everything. And I mean, I do think that there's signs everywhere, but there's also the other side of it, which is, I mean, I don't know really what, what you guys were taught, Adam, as guys in school or, or just in general, but I think that we were never taught that, like you say in your book and in your podcast and everything, that like pleasure is our right and our, you know, it, it is part of our scientific being. And even though it may take us longer, uh, you know, that there's this total misunderstanding, again, biologically about us and what you call clitoracy, which I like love that term that yeah. you know, there's not clitoracy, <laughs> there's not enough knowledge. It's not taught in right. school. Pleasure isn't taught in school. Like you, yeah. like you said, it's biology. It's, you know, you were taught yeah. about girls get pregnant and don't do this. And, you know, yeah. but there's no, there's no talk of pleasure. And so I don't think that yeah. we're really raised knowing we're raised as it it's sort of a challenge, right? Like maybe we'll have an orgasm, maybe we won't, maybe we'll get lucky sometimes. Yeah. Not that, no, it is your, your you know, as a, having a female body and a female, um, you know, uh, like female parts that it, it actually is, we have the most sensitive of any sexual parts of male, female. 
yeah, the clitoris is like such a great, amazing organ. And it would be so wonderful, you know, if we taught boys and girls and kids who identify as night or just taught them factually really interesting things. Like, um, for example, I don't know about you guys. Um, I like, I doubt that anybody told Adam when he was a kid, like, um, uh, did you know that your penis is made of the same material that um, a, a girl's vagina and clitoris and vulva are made of? Um, like nobody really, these boys and girls really suffer from the, the lack of good sex ed about pleasure. No, the, so the only thing maybe, that I remember from health yeah, class you, or sex ed is diagrams of a penis and diagrams of a vagina. And these are right. Like those is, pink diagrams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or remember those 3d molds? Yeah, that totally. <laughs> like it was just matter of fact. It was, you know, uh-huh. by the book and it was, this is this, and this is, you know, it's in science talk and, you know, but it was nothing about yeah. pleasure. Where are the and, fallopian tubes? Where yeah, is the uterus? This is where I the know, baby sits. I know, and you're like, how do I reconcile is... this to how good it feels to masturbate? Right, like, right. <laughs> right, that's not right. If If you figure out on your own how to masturbate because nobody's telling yeah. you to masturbate. Okay, wait, I'm sorry, but Adam, did you have any, what was your education? Let me put it this way. Clearly, we didn't get it in school, I don't think, the three of us. But Adam, where did any of your education come from about women and pleasure their pleasure and your pleasure was it magazines or other guys or your dad or where did you get your pleasure education about yourself and about women mostly experience learning as i go honestly like i was into magazines but that was just you know ogling over new women's bodies that's all it was but (laughs) you know but learning about women and you know what they want and what they desire it's all from just learning as I go from the experiences that I've had. I mean, so look, I, I, I did start very young. So, you know, you I was, were I was sexually curious young. Yes. What yeah. do you consider young? I was 14 the first time I, when I lost my virginity. Okay. We're going to call that sexual debut. You were 14 when you had your sexual, sexual debut. debut. <laughs> well, no, it's funny because she did pull back the curtains and then we got started. <laughs> Seriously, though, I want to make that intervention for you and your listeners. This is such a funny term from primatology, but I love it. They talk about uh, this primate, uh, this female primate had her sexual debut at age 14. Or, you know, this uh, juvenile male had his sexual debut when he was x months old and i like and and some people in the sex positive community have taken this up so when we say losing our virginity it's like a tragedy right but when we say having our sexual debut it sort of reframes our experiences in a way that some people might like like setting us up for like <laughs> debut, right? Like Adam jokes, like pulling back the curtain and like an amazing thing and out in the world of sex. And I hope that we can start um, educating kids to understand that. And I think it's really meaningful that Adam, that you say that you learned as you went along, right? Because well, I you- did. I, I have one more other great example of this and how that happened. I, I never masturbated until a girl did it to me. I never even knew that it was a possibility. And Look then at that she... pleasure, pleasure, pleasure educator who came into your life. <laughs> so she, <laughs> so when she did it to me, I said, "Wow, 
I can do this myself. <laughs> I'll see you later. I'm going home. <laughs> How old were you when you learned about that? Uh, I think I was also 14. <laughs> 14 was a big year. It all year. happened in he one year. He was very busy at 14. <laughs> 14 was an amazing year. Very busy. Well, what listen, about, you know, yeah, what like about that. you if I can ask? With masturbation? Like, well, I just want to know, like, so Adam was saying really it was an iterative process for him. There was no information available beyond here's the penis, here's the vagina. Um, this yeah. is what fallopian tubes look like. This is what reproduction happens. But there was nothing to connect the dots right. between that and like all the great things that you could do and pleasure. What about you? Right. You know, it's interesting because I do think like I have pretty prog- a pretty progressive mom. I won't say my dad is pretty progressive, but a pretty progressive mom. And so she would, you know, she definitely like would talk to us about stuff, not certainly not teaching anything, but she never, she always gave the sense of pleasure is important. But for right. me, I was always obsessed with like sexy movies when I was younger. So and when the, you say younger, how old were you when you started getting interested in that? Oh, I mean, I mean, the first movie I ever saw was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So, I mean, that oh. was, that was yeah, that was my first movie theater experience. My mom took me when I was like three years old and I loved it. <laughs> At, but, you know, I think, I think that was, it was seeing that, you know, all those movies, there was you know, um, flash dance and, um, you know, th- like, uh, as I got older, pretty woman and all okay. of those movies sort of, uh, were the construct of where I got my idea of what sex was going to be like. Right. So those were your resources for both of you, like other yeah. people, but I was also a very sexual, sexually curious, very young and started, I didn't have, I didn't lose my virginity that young, but. No, you I didn't was, have your sexual debut. Oh, that I'm young. so sorry. Yes. I did not have my sexual debut <laughs> until much later. I was 20, but okay. I was really, really probably younger than Adam when I started really like experimenting sexually. So experimenting like with masturbation or friends or. Um, with all of it. Like, right. uh, you know, boys, I used to play house with my girlfriends and, you know, there would be stuff going on and there would yeah. be, I mean, they're all everything. Sexual play. Sexual yeah. play. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, sexual play is worldwide, a cultural universal, um, you know, except in places where uh, children are sex segregated from a very early time in their life. And um, when I say that, people think I mean like Saudi Arabia, right? Which, yeah, that's true. But also like the Hamptons in the summer. My son, uh, who loved having little girlfriends, um, he was in a sex segregated summer camp at age four. They started separating the girls from the boys. Um, so yeah, and but but sex play and sex experimentation uh, pretty much happens worldwide among kids. They're sexually curious, and it's just such a tragedy you know that we don't get in there and like show them cool stuff like right Mm -hmm. i'm holding up a three-dimensional model of a human female clitoris oh we need one for those our one of those for our dining room yeah (laughs) like adam could have been in a class where somebody told him about this but like now he can tell your kids and right. I bet you that most people, not I'm not just saying most men, most people think the clitoris is just that little tip right there. So yes, most people think it's just the tip. This is called the glands and it's the only part visible 
to the human eye, right? That we can mm -hmm. see it kind of sticks out and it's under the clitoral hood. And so a lot of men and women and people know where that is. But what I'm, for your viewers who can't see, it's hundreds of times larger and it's inside. And like, I think it would be so cool if in sex ed, we showed kids this three-dimensional model of the human female clitoris. And then we showed them, this, this is basically the penis. Right, a penis is basically an an oversized or a larger clitoris. Um, you know, the and you can see it when you look at this clitoris. You can see how analogous they are. You can see they develop from the same embryonic tissue, and they're just expressed differently. The clitoris is internal. The penis is external. But imagine, you know, if you had grown up noting, girls have this amazing thing. Um, it's a lot like a penis, but it's on the inside. Uh, girls get hard ons girls get erections um, and women and when women are turned on you know they get wood um, I always like to say like I hope women listening will like look up a three-dimensional model of the human female clitoris and will have a look at it um, and understand it a little better and then I always say like tune in to how that feels when you're turned on if you tune in you can feel yourself getting a hard on which is pretty cool um, but like it could be very cool earlier in their lives for kids to have this information. And I think it would make uh, uh, girls a lot more understandable to boys and boys a lot more understandable to girls. <laughs> if we started with this and understood these, this and the penis uh, are both there. Uh, the penis is there for function. Some people think that the clitoris uh, serves the function of during orgasm maybe sort of squeezing uh, sperm up through the vaginal canal, but some people think that it's just for pure pleasure. But in any case, imagine how different our young adult lives might've been if we had known about the clitoris, for example, just, just one thing, and known that here's the biological basis and the anatomical basis for us being unable to say men are naturally more sexual than women. Nope, mm -hmm. same embryonic tissue. One's on the outside, one's on the inside. It's just one more way uh, to clear up the misunderstanding and, and stop stop framing men and stop framing women. And stop, so, it's stop so giving interesting. them a pass and stop burdening women and stop burdening men. Right, and it's so interesting where, when you talk about sex ed in middle school and everything, I think I learned every single female part except the clitoris like there was no <laughs> no i know shut up about my like fallopian tubes. right like i don't give like, a shit about the fallopian that. tombs thank you but you know it's yeah. just so interesting it is so one time um i was interviewing latham thomas who's like the uh she's sort of like this really cool like doula to black hollywood and she's like a pleasure educator and she was talking to me and she said wednesday we, and I thought of all of us as kids, including the three of us now that I know you guys. She's Wednesday, everywhere we go, we see maps of the female reproductive system, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the vagina, God help us, we've seen it a million times. She said, but when you go into a doctor's office, where's the map of the female erectile network? Where is the map of the female pleasure system? And I was like, yeah, where is that map? Wait, what is that? What are you talking about? <laughs> and I was like a 52-year-old feminist writing a book about female sexuality. Yeah. I didn't know about the female erectile network. I didn't know about the internal female clitoris. So yeah, 
sex ed, we're not getting it in schools. For those of us who have kids in private schools, you know, we can push and say that we think it's important and we want to see it. For those of us with kids in public school, when we get back to that, um, I think it's really important for people to put pressure uh, on school on schools and on school administrators who are high up that they that they think that sex education um, is important and also sex education that includes pleasure. You know, if you really want to hook kids, you just throw in simple things like and it and and when you're older, it'll feel good to touch this um, and um, you know to, to just to just do that. And I wanted to say something about um, like both of you saying it was an iterative process for you to get into pleasure. Um, my friend Sue J. Johnson has this great TED talk about pleasure. She has daughters and she realized really early on that they weren't getting sex ed and when they were, there was no component about pleasure. But she decided to start really early with a really simple thing. She just had this idea that if she taught her daughters to know what felt good to them, they would eventually um, really have a better understanding of sexual pleasure and feel entitled to it. So very early on, she would do this. If she was brushing her daughter's hair, like four-year-old daughter's hair and her four-year-old daughter went, ah. Oh. And her mom, Sue would say, why are you saying that? because it feels good. And Sue would reflect back to her, oh, it feels good when somebody brushes your hair. What part of it feels good? You know, and her daughter would say, oh, it feels good when somebody touches my scalp or, oh, it just, it feels good when the hairbrush goes on my arm or whatever, right? And then a few days later, her daughter might be just like lying in the sand on the beach, right? And feeling the sand and her mom would say, what you doing? lying in the sand. How come? I like it. Does it feel good? Yeah, it feels really good. What part of it feels good? The sand is really warm and it feels good on my arms and it feels good on my tummy and it feels good on my chest. Wow, so you like warm things touching you, right? Or conversely, uh, if her, she hugged her daughter and her daughter turned away, and uh, Sue would say, what's up? And she'd say, I don't like that. I don't wanna be hugged right now. How come? Does it feel good? Why? Because I wanna be doing something else or um, because I have a bruise on my shoulder, mommy. So she was getting her daughters to understand their entire bodies were theirs and they had a lexicon or a language of pleasure that they could learn things they liked, things they didn't like, things that felt good, things that felt less good, things that felt absolutely amazing, the things that felt absolutely the best, things they never wanted to feel, things they only like to feel sometimes. That way, <laughs> when she layered on sex ed, these girls, and it would work just as well for a boy, um, but girls do need it more in the aggregate because um, they just aren't raised feeling entitled to pleasure, right? They're supposed to give pleasure back to like Jeannie and Miss America and the television shows mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Um, women are really, and girls are socialized to give other people pleasure. So she just wanted to make sure they knew and she was just layering on layer after layer of understanding yourself and what felt good and what touches felt good and what felt bad and what you wanted and what you didn't want. 
That's I so think smart. those girls are going to be very well prepared for their yeah. sexual debuts and beyond <laughs> to understand yeah. what feels good and to be able to communicate to their partners what feels good. Um, so this is very different talk from when we were talking about like plow agriculture and patty agriculture. No, but it's perfect. Because it's... But it's all linked yeah. in because you'll find in ecologies uh, where women were kind of disempowered for a long period of time, um, they really do need that extra um, bit of socializing to know that they're entitled to pleasure and to, to, to know that it's okay to seek it out and to know what they enjoy and then to be able to talk about it. Right. And yeah. one thing I love that you say on your podcast that I've heard you say is that I know your boys, your oldest is a little, is 19 or something, whatever. And, and you'll once in a while throw in like a, a tidbit of information, something sexual, and you'll say it. And then they'll be like, don't ever talk to me about that again. And you're like, but I got it in. I said it. <laughs> I love yeah. that because it's so true. They can't unhear it now. Even if they, you know, they yell at you after you're like, yeah. okay, what can I say? That's one sentence and they're going to hate it, but I need them to hear it. And I'm want to say it so yeah. I'm doing that from now on my kids yeah. can blame you <laughs> I, there's, and there's so many little things that dads can do too like for example I I recently posted something I said just like normalize telling off men who express contempt for female vocal artists because like it's a form of misogyny but the upside of that is like in a culture where we kind of are downplaying have downplayed for many many centuries um you know female achievement and um it's it's still important for girls and boys alike to get messages messaging you know um uh, along these lines but it's so powerful when a dad with his son is listening to a female vocal artist and just says wow this is an awesome song Listen to her voice. She has such a strong voice. Like, I really like her voice. Like, anytime a dad can model, you can see why it's really important for a dad to do it with his girls. But anytime a dad can model for his boys uh, that he really admires women in a work, in, an, in a day-to-day -day way, he doesn't have to sit him down and go like, son, I want to tell you something. You need to be good to women. Like, that doesn't work. What works is like, wow, could you believe like how Beyonce, how, like, look how strong she is when she does those dances. Like how much do you think she has to practice? I don't know if I could ever do that. As much as I could practice and practice, I don't know if I could do that. Just men pointing out female awesomeness in random moments is a really, is a really big thing that dads can do to change the world because they're changing how their kids see men and women. Anytime a dad, um, I always tell my husband, Pretend that you're a baby maniac, even if you don't feel it. When you see a baby, you say to our boys, oh my God, I want to just go over and hold it. Can I just go over? Oh, I just want to hold that baby. Do you think they were like, look how cute that baby is. Say something concrete, right? Oh, it would feel so good to hold that baby. <laughs> uh, right? And if you do that enough, your boy is not going to be going out into the world thinking, yeah, men are just like, do you know how damaging it is for boys to receive all this messaging all the time that boys are date rapists, boys are dogs, boys can't connect, boys just want one thing. It kills me, but I love that the interventions can be so small and so effective. So I always take heart and 
I think what got me on that little tear there for a second is that was recently, the last time I saw my 19 year old, we were walking down the beach and I knew I was too late with my, some of my interventions. Cause I was saying to him, I need to understand why you don't listen to a single female vocal artist. I've never heard you say a good thing about a female vo vocal artist. What do you think that's about? Like, duh, yeah, that you and dad like forgot to, to do the things I'm now telling Adam that I hope they'll do. <laughs> and all the dads listening that I hope they'll do. They can make such a big difference. Listen, it's so harmful for boys to wake, to, to be uh, bombarded with messaging that they only want one thing. Mm -hmm. that boys are date rapists and rapists and it's very very damaging so i'm really hopeful that getting more accurate uh, sexual science out there is going to change the world for boys yeah. and girls and kids who identify as not I hope so too. I, I could literally talk to you all day. I, I think I got through like three questions because I was just so enthralled with everything that you were saying. Um, maybe you'll come back another time and we I can pick it up. I would love to. Thank if you, you so tell much. me your address, I'm going to mail you guys one. Oh my God. Yay. I'm, I'm going to, I can't wait. It's going to be displayed on our dining room I table. Two, one for you and one for Adam. Well, yeah, I need one so I can have practice. Right. You true. get to, okay. yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Does yeah. it vibrate? No, it oh. doesn't. It, but I the real one doesn't either. So real, it's probably yeah, better. the real one. Does, you know what? They need to make these that are more. I mean, I'm holding up this one, and the ones that I'm going to send you are quite brittle. It kind of looks like Gumby. But I'm yeah, I Gumby wish they would be a little more. Uh, they would give a little more and be more rubber-like because they could be like those anxiety toys that people squeeze in their hand, right? Oh. And then you could give them to your kids and they could just like very <laughs> naturally be like holding onto this while they do their homework and they could just get a lesson about this. Right, show and tell. And be very familiar with it. Right. Oh yeah, feels good to squeeze that thing. Right. <laughs> oh, if only you knew. Well, someday you'll find out. Thank you so much. It You're awesome. And you we're so happy that you came on and enjoy your time in your, uh, in your house by yourself. Oh, I'm enjoying it so much. I'm it'll, super it'll jealous. The reunion, the reunion will be all the sweeter for the time apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. For all the work much. you do. Thank oh, you, you too. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.